X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 10th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Do you have a favorite teleconferencing background? I don't know. I'm just looking for a good one. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines. Alex Zelensky from the Portland Mercury with her coverage on how COVID-19 is impacting inmates. And our interview with Jeff Kogan, former Multnomah County chair and now candidate for House District 46. We have to get 100% of Oregonians insured for health care. And it's not that far from 100%, but it's like 93 to 95% now. And we have to get 100% insured. On yesterday's episode, you can hear our interview with his opponent, Con Pham. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and it is Friday, April 10th. Your latest Oregon COVID-19 status report, thanks to Ben DeJarnett and the Bridgeliner team. So what needs to happen before Oregon's stay-at-home order can end? And maybe how long till we get there? Here's where things stand. We know that the peak looks like it's happening a couple weeks in mid-April. There are four goals to watch for before opening up Oregon's stay-at-home order. Goal number one, increase the testing capacity. We've seen a little bit of improvement since last week, but not that much. Oregon is testing now about 1,385 people per day. That's a far cry from the 1,900 to 3,200 tests per day that experts say are needed. Universally available testing allows for more individualized quarantining. In national news, the president announced an ending of funding for testing and then changed his mind after backlash. Goal number two. Reduce the number of new cases. It's hard to know exactly what's happening with new cases until the testing improves, but the trend looks like it's moving in the right direction. Oregon is reporting about 72 new cases per day, and the latest epidemiological models say that 10 times fast predict that the peak could come soon, as long as Oregonians keep up their physical distancing. Goal number three, increase hospital capacity. Local companies, big and small, are joining the effort to manufacture more PPE, more personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. But there's still work to do for a stable supply chain. Oregon also has about 800 fewer ventilators than some health experts recommend. But in a roundabout way, Governor Kate Brown's decision this week to send 140 ventilators to New York might actually help with that, even if we reach that high maximum of need. Why? Because New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has pledged New York will repay the favor when Oregon needs it. That could prove a valuable IOU. Goal number four, improve containment strategy. Of course, is linked to testing capacity. Governor Kate Brown followed the CDC's guidance this week and advised Oregonians to wear cloth face masks whenever they go out in public. While there is debate about how much a mask protects the wearer, there's a growing consensus that it helps everybody who's near the wearer, which is one of the pieces to the containment puzzle. The others are monitoring and tracing, serological testing, and access to public quarantine facilities, which might look like a Western version of the fever clinics that they had in China. And Oregon's progress in those areas is, well, a big unknown. Oregon's stay-at-home order has succeeded at slowing the spread of the virus and avoiding a situation like the one in New York, but that's only a portion of the battle. To avoid a spike in cases after the stay-at-home order ends, we need a plan for mass testing, effective containment, and expanded hospital capacity. And in those areas, Oregon has a long way to go. Tune into the local next week to hear from Tyler Tremere, CEO of the Cascade AIDS Project, for a firsthand account of running a healthcare organization that provides testing and care during COVID-19. And your regional data update. State and local officials reporting 1,321 known cases as of Thursday afternoon. 
and 44 known coronavirus-related deaths in the state. Projected deaths on COVID19.healthdata.org are holding steady right now at 172, and again a peak in about mid-April. And Washington State is reporting 9,097 diagnosed cases and 421 related deaths, with a peak of about two weeks earlier than Oregon. That means it's peaking just about now. Hang in there, folks. According to data out Thursday, in the past three weeks, one in eight Oregon workers have lost their jobs. The Oregon Employment Department has fielded 100,700 claims last week, up from record levels in each of the previous two weeks. All told, Oregon has received nearly 270,000 claims in the past three weeks. By comparison, Oregon suffered just under 150,000 job losses throughout the Great Recession just over a decade ago. Meanwhile, the Oregon Employment Department said it paid out $28 million in benefits last week. That total is expected to rise sharply in coming weeks. Nationally, 16.8 people filed for jobless claims the past three weeks. The Federal CARES Act, passed by Congress last week, was that really just last week? Provided funding for states to waive the typical one-week waiting period before their claims start paying benefits. Oregon says it will not waive the waiting week. How come? Because our computer systems can't handle the change without further delaying the processing of those new claims. If it helps any, the department did apologize for the delays and the confusion. The department has said it will begin processing the new $600 benefit payments Congress has authorized by the end of this week. One of the industries hit hardest is the restaurant industry. Next week on The Local, we'll be joined by legendary local chef and restaurant owner Naomi Pomeroy. We'll talk about the newly formed Independent Restaurant Coalition, advocating nationally for support of the 11 million people employed by restaurants and the hundreds of millions impacted across supply and delivery chains. According to a report out by Health Management Associates, 320,000 Oregonians may need Medicaid due to job losses. Here's some of the arithmetic. As many as 430,000 Oregonians could lose their employer-sponsored health plans in the coming months. Most of those people, about 320,000, would turn to the Oregon Health Plan. That's our state's version of Medicaid. That scenario involves the state being swept by massive layoffs, pushing the jobless rate to 25%. That's about the same jobless rate in the Great Depression. Under the most benign scenario in the report, the jobless rate would rise to just 10% from its current 3.3%. That would see around 145,000 people losing their employer-sponsored coverage and lead to about 149,000 signing up for Medicaid. Now, the state, using federal and state money, spends about $6,000 a year insuring each of its 1 million Oregon Health Plan members. An extra 100 149,000 members could cost the government about $900 million a year. An extra 320,000 members would cost $1.9 billion a year. That's a lot of numbers. Basically, it's $1 to $2 billion. But there's one more piece of the equation. In Oregon, the federal government pays about 75% of the roughly $6 billion annual tab for the Oregon health plan. The state picks up the rest. So stay with me on the arithmetic. That's about a quarter to a half a billion dollars from the state. Now, a little bit of context. Oregon is an Affordable Care Act expansion state. In 2014, Oregon expanded Medicaid eligibility, unlike a bunch of southern and midwestern states, a.k.a. a lot of red states, anti-Obama states. As a Medicaid expansion state, many of the Oregonians filing initial unemployment claims will most likely become eligible for Medicaid. The federal government, in an act of Congress passed in mid-March, offered some extra temporary money to state Medicaid plans. That means we might get another $250 million a year. Non-expansion states... Texas, Wyoming, South Dakota, some of the Midwest, most of the Confederate South, continued to restrict Medicaid to just the very poor. 
What are folks in those states going to do? We'll have to leave that analysis to the local news podcast for those states. Except they might not have those either. Thanks, Oregon. Portland Parks has deployed park greeters to encourage social distancing. Even though Portland City Parks, trails, and golf courses remain open to the public, it is very important that people actively practice social distancing. For spaces open to the public, people must still maintain at least six feet of distance between other people. The weather's getting nice. The Parks Department is anticipating crowds, and Portland Parks and Rec has said it would deploy park greeters. How you doing? Stay the heck back! How you doing? Get back! Welcome. How you doing? Now stand back. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the park. Now get the heck back! Thanks for coming. How you doing? Now stand back! The agency said park ranges are already at some sites. And I'm quoting, informing the public on safe social distancing in high traffic areas and addressing issues as they arrive, such as explaining what facilities are open or closed. No word if these are the same folks who monitored dancing in Beaumont, Utah, to make sure Kevin Bacon maintains sufficient degrees of separation. Even as we make light of it, it is very important. Stay back. 40 days and 40 nights. In 40 days, ballots are due in Oregon. While other states are postponing democracy or putting their community members at risk, we won't forget, Wisconsin, we won't forget, Supreme Court. Oregon will soon show off one of our innovations. Disaster preparedness done right, a move toward resiliency, a move to preserve our democracy. Yes, vote by mail. There's a lot in the world we don't know or fully understand. But we can count on this election in Oregon. It's going to happen. It's a moment to bring a little bit of certainty and a bit of democracy back in our lives. 40 days to go. You can join us in the countdown, friends. 40 days to go. And quick reminder, voter registration deadline is April 28th, and you'll start getting your ballots right about the very beginning of May. Finally, the team is working hard to get you a full set of long-form candidate interviews. You can get them at xraypod.com or listen to them here each day on The Local. In just a bit, we'll share another one, this time with Jeff Kogan. If we haven't said it enough, we'll say it again. Thank you, Oregon. And thanks to Jessica Black for tweeting out something nice about the show. You are the way people will find out about this show. We don't have time to market it. We're working around the clock to make it happen every single day. You can tag me at Jefferson D. Smith or you can tag X-Ray at, at X-Ray FM. And we can say thanks to you. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith and you're listening to The Local. Yesterday we shared the headlines about a recent prison protest, a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of inmates, and the potential early release of inmates. Alex Zelinsky has more. Last week, you and I talked about what is happening in the prison system and in the jail system. I think you are still tracking that. What are the updates? What is happening right now in our prison system and jail system with respect to COVID-19? Yeah, well, I think we mostly talked about the jail system, and now there's been more of a focus on the prison system as there has been at least um, one case of an inmate uh, having coronavirus in uh, the Oregon prison system. I think there's now eight um, eight cases in particular. The majority of them are employees um, within the prison system, and they're all currently being reported just in Salem area prisons. Um, but news of that uh, of that spread beginning has definitely uh, struck a chord within all of the inmates in all of the, the 14 different Oregon prisons. Um, I've been speaking with a number of folks 
who are incarcerated up in um, Portland's uh, Columbia River Correctional Institute, which is up in North Portland, which is an all-men's uh, prison, and especially folks who are living in the, the, the unit that's kind of reserved for folks who are, have medical needs, um, which is a wide range of, of things. Maybe they're being... Um, you know, they're getting cancer treatment or they're HIV positive or maybe they just have really bad asthma and they can't walk upstairs because this is the one unit that's on the bottom floor. Um, also, the elderly population, folks in wheelchairs. Uh, so people living in these in this unit in particular, because they're especially high risk to getting um, the coronavirus right now and, and to getting a really serious case of it, are, um, are particularly concerned because they're not seeing the kind of the kind of care and um, and uh, you know medical access uh, that to you know prevent the spread of coronavirus that we're seeing outside of prison in some ways, which already is kind of limited in you know uh, in the general population. And so the kind of fears that um, we hear in the general public kind of reflected behind um, behind prison walls, but they they are really concerned that they're not getting the kind of um, you know they're not getting treat or if if folks test positive or no one's getting tested for for coronavirus um, unless they have really really severe symptoms similar to kind of what's going on out here but they're also not really being put into quarantine they're being sent back into the general population folks who do have really severe symptoms are being put into isolation but in prison that looks like being placed in solitary confinement um, which for a lot of folks is the last place they want to go so a lot of people are not really going to say that they have symptoms that are like coronavirus or any kind of symptoms to avoid being placed in something like that um, for up to two weeks which means that you know this virus could still be easily contracted um, among the population and among you know employees coming in to, to the prison um, so it's concerning right now. Uh, yeah, a couple nights ago, there was a, a protest with two different units in the Columbia River Correctional Institution kind of pushed back against uh, correctional officers, um, upset that they weren't really getting the information that they really needed and, and felt like they were being lied to. Um, what is a protest? What is a protest that like that look like? What does a protest like that look like? It's different than some protest just on a Portland street. Yeah, and it's not like a classic like prison riot that you'd expect and see in movies. I think it's more just like people being upset and aggravated and kind of yelling at the guards, feeling like they're not, um, uh, allegedly the guards were not letting people wear homemade masks when they were inside prison. Um, the guards themselves weren't getting access to masks until really recently, and so there's kind of, uh, you know, it kind of goes up the, the ladder. I think uh, correction officers are also a little frustrated and scared that they're going to get um, they're going to get the, the virus because they're working in this scenario that isn't super safe. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the protest in general is just is, is a lot of upset inmates, um, you know, yelling and, and forcing a lot of correction officers out of their unit for a time, being forced into lockdown. Um, not, n you know, no physical injuries or anything, just just tensions bubbling. And this is a minimum security prison. This isn't really a normal thing to see um, in a place like this where people are just, 
in and out for a small amount of time. It's not like a long-term maximum security space where there are a lot of, you know, um, long-term tensions between, there's more of an us versus them, I think, um, sensibility between uh, inmates and and correction officers. I think um, from the inmates that I spoke with, they're also, they're, they're looking out more for these correction officers than what you ex- expect. They're, they're worried about their own health. They want to make sure that their employees, the folks who are looking out for them and that are in charge of them are also able to access, um, you know, personal protective equipment to, to keep themselves safe. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, folks inside and outside of the prison are really demanding that the state government, um, and especially Governor Kate Brown, um, you know, starts lessening the population of folks within prison system, both, you know, this one Portland area prison, but also across the um, the state to make it a little bit more possible to practice social distancing within pretty crowded prisons. Um, and that would be, you know, releasing people who have sentences are almost over or they are particularly at risk of um, of getting a serious case of, of COVID-19. And and um, right now, apparently, the, the governor is considering that and looking into that. Um, she has given herself a, a Monday deadline to make some decisions. Meanwhile, though, there's just, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say if there'll be more cases within prisons by that time, um, especially with people coming, guards and employees coming in and out every day. Um, yeah, it's it's you know one inmate. Described I want to ask you. I, I want to ask you yeah. about that, and I want to ask you about the lawsuit and the governor's order. But how are you getting sources inside prisons? What do those conversations look like? Do you show up? Do you call? Do they drop a quarter into a slot? How does it work? <laughs> uh, you, uh, you, they're they're not accepting any visitors right now, so it's all over the phone. Um, I I've known a couple folks who have. Um, a lot of advocates for inmates and lawyers who have, uh, you know, contacts inside the prison and, and they have access to the internet. They're reading what the governor's saying. They're reading what, you know, um, prison officials are saying and they're upset that they're not feeling like what's being read in the media or what's being, you know, relayed in the media or um, in these press releases is really accurate. And so uh, a good number of folks from within the prison have really um, uh, joined together to really make sh- reach out to the media and find ways to contact the media. I know I'm not the only person who's speaking with these folks um, because they really feel like there's not, uh, the, the story's not coming out clearly. And so it's, um, you know, all you have to really do is register your, your phone number with the prison system and any, anyone can call you. You just have to pay it uh, by the minute. What are the highest priority demands that are being made both to the governor and in the lawsuit? And among those demands, which seem the most realistic and likely to be able to be said yes to? Yeah, um, it's a wide range. Obviously, one one end of it is start releasing inmates, start releasing people who are nearing the end of their sentences, who are especially vulnerable. And the other end, though, it's, hey, make sure you're providing enough soap for everyone to wash their hands during the day. Uh, make sure you're uh, uh, allowing folks to wear masks if they have a cough. Um, 
you know, separate, make sure beds are not just three feet apart from each other and massive dormitories of 80 people sleeping together. Um, you know, kind of your, your basic social distancing requests that, that really the governor, um, you know, uh, asked for in her previous executive order about workplace and, um, you know, essential workplaces being open, uh, what rules they need to follow. And if prisons are an essential workplace, I guess, for, for employees who are there and also just a facility that needs to keep running, um, a lot of inmates say that they're not, they're really not able to follow those rules and it puts them in at, at high risk. And so, yeah, at one end, it's it's um, release more people, release people into the general population. The other end, it's um, you know just allow for a, a small uh, improvement in the ability to to protect yourself against the virus. Thanks, Alex. Yesterday, we brought you an interview with Con Pham, candidate for House District 46. Today, we have another candidate in that race, Jeff Kogan, former chair of the Multnomah County Commission. We talk about his decision to jump back to pursue elected office, running for office during the pandemic, and what he'll prioritize as a state legislator. You can find other candidate interviews in previous episodes of The Local and at xraypod.com. Jeff Kogan, welcome to X-Ray. Thank you very much. How are you campaigning in the context of the coronavirus? Well, I was going to have a campaign kickoff party. I was going to do 12 house parties. I was going to go door to door every day till the election. But those are off because of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, So I'm calling constituents and that's been pretty good. Does it help you you, relative to other candidates in the race? Does it help you that campaigning is going to be harder because you've already got more name recognition than almost anybody who ever runs for an Oregon House primary? Well, I think it does. But I think that, you know, I have to get reacquainted with people. So I think that it does, but it doesn't. Because you want to reintroduce yourself, because you want to have that conversation. You don't just want to rely on the fact that you were in the county commission some years ago. When was your last year as county chair? Uh, 2013. What have you learned from that experience? Feel free to share the circumstances of your exit from the county county commission. And, And then I do want to talk about sort of the time in between. But, yeah, talk about that experience a little bit. Well, I had an affair, and I resigned. Um, And, you know, I went to two and a half years of therapy with my wife to work on what made me have that affair. And and she's good with me, and I'm good with her. (laughs) Um, And she's supporting my run currently. Um, But I, you know, I was always about giving back to the community. And when when I left the county, I worked, well, I worked for Democracy Resources for a year, but I worked for Impact Northwest for five years. Um, and I think that that's um, about me giving back to the community. And what did you learn from the experience? Clearly, maybe what did you learn from therapy? And I don't just mean about your marriage. Feel free to share that if you choose, but that's not really my question. Uh, I, too, have dealt with, you know, a, a, a painful political loss that was linked to painful personal conduct and Mm -hmm. trying to grapple with my own sins, my own weakness, my own darkness, that at best it's tuition so I can be a better human being and maybe a better, you know, leader for whomever, a better colleague for whomever I work with. What did you learn? Well, I learned that um, 
my wife, I thought she didn't support me getting into politics. And when we went to therapy, I saw that she did support me getting into politics, and I was misleaded on that. Um, I was misled on that. Um, and we worked it out. So I, I know she's supportive of me getting into politics, but that was only a part of the thing I learned. Um, I, I learned that I have to be true to myself, and I have to give to my community. And I went out of politics, and I gave to my community um, in the, you know, in the for-profit and in the non-profit realm. And now I'm going to run for state reps, so I'm going to do that in the government realm. And what was the process when you decided, you know what, I'm ready? I did the democracy resources thing, and that's and that's uh, Ted Blazak's operation, right? That's the yep. operation yep. that does ballot initiative gathering. And I, I, yep. I might actually want to ask you about that a little bit, and also might want to ask you about Impact Northwest. What was the process about? You say, okay, I've been doing this. It's been six years that I've been out of uh, I've been out of that kind of public life. I am ready to run for office. What's that look like? Well, it wasn't really about democracy resources. It was about Impact Northwest. Um, because we um, we tried to get homeless people houses, and we had 200 employees that tried to get homeless people houses and near homeless people. We tried to get them to stay in their houses, and we only reached less than 10,000 people each year. And I wanted to have a bigger impact than that. So that was one thing that led me to get into the state race. But another thing that led me to get into the state race is a little less than three years ago, I had a stroke. And Impact Northwest... I, I didn't know that, by the way. I feel embarrassed. Oh. I wasn't even going to say so. I feel embarrassed for not knowing that. If it was in the news, I missed it. Yeah, well, I mean, it was not... Yeah, it was in the news, but it was not that prominent in the news. Yeah. Um, I, I had a stroke three and a half... Or three years ago, and I got better. I, I had no physical ailments, but my speech... I couldn't speak after my stroke. I couldn't speak at all after my stroke. For how long? And, you've always, and to be clear, not everybody, I mean, people might remember what you look like, but you've always been a pretty healthy guy. You've struck me. So it must have, that stroke must have struck you surprised. Uh, how well, long? I had an accident. I was uh, at Seaside in the bumper cars, and a person hit me in the back, and my head went back, and I had a stroke from that. It gave you a stroke on the bumper cars? Yep, it did. Did Seaside give you free tickets? give you a stroke, but they can <laughs> I mean, at least you should get some skee-ball or something out of the gig. <laughs> How long could you not speak? I couldn't speak for a week. And then I could speak gradually. And I went through a whole year of speech therapy. And, and Impact Northwest paid for my short-term and long-term disability insurance. And that was the key to me getting better. Because if I didn't get that year of speech therapy, I couldn't speak at all. Or maybe I could just speak a little bit. But I got a year of speech therapy two to three times a week. And I can speak like I do now. So I think that when I think about running for the state, the state should give all people health insurance because only like 93% have health insurance. And they should give all people short-term and long-term disability insurance. Man, I feel for you. And I, mm -hmm. I, I, after I say this, I can only imagine what friends of mine might chuckle into their breasts. But if I lost the ability to speak, I don't know if I'd do with myself. I might, might please any number of people, but I don't know what I would do with myself. <laughs> What's the craziest thing? And once I ask that, you might not even want to characterize it as crazy, but something that is least out of the, at least in the main in terms of a process proposal, right? Whether it's star voting, ranked choice voting, uh, limitations on campaign contributions, public financing, 
multi-member districts, uh, anything, what was the most radical thing that you're in favor of, not only that you would read about, but that you would that you would support uh, some version of it when it comes to disrupting the current political process? Ranked choice voting is the one I'm in favor of. And why ranked choice voting over star voting? That's, you know, Mark Fronmeyer's thing where you, you know, you sort of give Yelp reviews and, and the, the argument being that it can be hard to remember, like, oh, is that is that my second or my sixth favorite choice? But I, it's kind of easy for me to say, oh, I like that person. That's a, per- that's a five-star person. That person's a two-star person. Yeah, I think that Mark's proposal is fine. I mean, I think that we should just rank choices. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mark's proposal is fine. Ranked choice voting is fine. But I think we should rank choices because because um, if the first person you vote for is not going to go places, the second person you vote for is maybe going to go places. So, you know, it's, I think that we should do that. Yeah. Uh, what are you – do you have a – are you engaging in any of the other races? Do you have a Do you have a pick for? Uh, well, presumably you're supporting the mayor. He supported you. Do you have a pick yep. in Nick Fish's uh, in Nick Fish's district? In Nick Fish's seat, excuse me, it's a citywide district. I'm supporting uh, Dan Ryan and Sam Chase in that race, and I think that they should be going to the runoff. But I don't, you know. But there's like 15 candidates in that race. There's a lot. At last last time I checked, I read 18, but I couldn't name all 18. 18, wow. I, I, can, I, I was able to name nine when I started writing down of the people I knew of. I could name, or is it even nine? I actually only wrote down eight. Uh, I wrote down eight, so but apparently there's like ten more, uh, and uh, and wow. we're gonna and we're gonna communicate with all of them at least. Give we're doing our best to to uh, operate under equal time expectations. Uh, what wow. is your <laughs> what is your insight? Because for a long time you were a city guy, right? I remember talking yep. to Steve Novick about this. It's like you know early on we were talking about maybe he would run for run for some citywide office. He's like I'm not really a city guy, and then eventually he was a city guy for one term. Uh, and mm-hmm. you were a city guy, and then you were a county guy. Talk about what is for people who are trying to make a decision in these city races, even county and metro races. Uh, what do you think people should be paying attention to that maybe they're not paying sufficient attention to? Well, I mean, the county does what the state says it's going to do, and the city does urban services. And I think that the people should consider the city races in terms of urban services, transportation, planning, development, um, parks. Um, they should consider those races in that context. What do you say to people who might say, listen, this, his real passion was to be mayor, his real passion was to be county chair, maybe his real passion was to stay. How much do you really care about the legislature? What, what's your response? And I, by the way, usually think this is a garbage question, but I'm, I want to hear what your response to that garbage question is. Uh, do people say, well, this is just really a stepping stone for Jeff to, be, to make a political comeback? Um, no, it's not a stepping stone. I'm going to go to the legislature and be in the legislature because the county handled state legislative issues. We handled health care and public safety and human services. And I'm going to go to the state and handle those kinds of things as well. What are your what is your favorite and what is your least favorite revenue idea to provide funding for critical organ services? Um, well, they should take um, the capital gains tax and put it at what the income tax is. And that's going to be like 200 or 300 million dollars a year. That's my favorite. Wait, say that one again. They should take the capital gains tax, which yeah. have taxed below the income tax level, and raise it up to the income tax level. 
and that's going to raise like two hundred and fifty million dollars here. And by the way, by the way, you know, also thank that, thank you for that, because so for so many years there have been people who say, oh, we really should reduce the capital gains, but yeah, why not have capital gains tax like income and just treat it the same? Why is unearned income treated better than earned income? I totally agree. <laughs> Jeff Kogan, candidate for uh, House District. What's your number again? 46, correct? 46, yep. Thank, and that's southeast, that's mo- largely southeast Portland. Yep, yep. Thank you so much for spending this time, man. It is delightful to talk to you and really appreciate your service. You too. Be well. Thanks to Alex and Jeff for joining us, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Write a review and give us a five-star rating so we can move up in the queue. Or tell some friends or post something. And if you have story ideas, do send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Big thanks this week to our production team. We just finished our 15th episode. I want to say thanks to Will Romy, our editor, writers Casey Colton, Julie Oppenheimer, Joey Palchik, Miranda Selinger, and Jamie Zangwill, and co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. Thanks to original news pieces from the Portland Business Journal, the Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, the Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Street Roots, Sightline, X-Rays, Kate Kay, and Eric Klein, and news partners Bridgeliner and the Portland Mercury. I'm Jefferson Smith. Talk to you Monday. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.